A society can't be a more just society, a more fair society, without it being a more empathetic society. And the arts help build empathy. And understanding and engagement with the arts builds in us an ability, a capacity for introspection, for putting ourselves in the shoes of other people, an ability to imagine what it must be like to be different than who we are, whether we are a white man or a black man or a white woman or whatever. Welcome to the second season of Hyperallergic, the podcast. I'm Rock Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. This season, we're going to embrace a more free-flowing format for the podcast and include things like audio essays, unusual interviews, quirky stories, and in-depth conversations. We're excited to get started. So that voice at the beginning of this podcast, that was Darren Walker. He's the president of the Ford Foundation, one of the world's biggest private foundations with over $12 billion in assets. It gives roughly half a billion dollars a year in grants. And what I discovered is he's a true believer in the arts. The arts is a critical mechanism in our culture, in our democracy. And so without art, we don't have empathy. And without empathy, we don't have justice. The Ford Foundation has been focusing their efforts on issues of inequality recently because, frankly, it's everywhere in society now and things are getting worse. Well, I do worry that the growing inequality in our society is producing people who are so rich that they are able to live in a parallel universe, if you will. Um, and I worry about that. He's been shaking things up in the conservative world of philanthropy, and I got a chance to talk to him about the foundation's recent re-entry to Detroit, his personal love of art, and how institutions like the Ford are changing as the authority of all institutions are coming under scrutiny, as public is starting to rethink how things work and realizing, well, not everything is really working for their benefit. I visited him at the Ford's current offices near Times Square, and I asked him about the recent news that the foundation's opening an office in Detroit, a place they left in 1953. Well, it certainly represents, I think, a coming home of sorts for us. Uh, there is no question that there was a time when the foundation was less engaged in Detroit. And I think although we've always made grants in Detroit and supported nonprofits in Detroit, our engagement was not always um, at the same level of intensity. When Henry Ford II resigned from our board in 1976, he said that he really did not see a place for the Ford family within the Ford Foundation. And we had very little contact with the family until recently, which I regret. I believe that an association with the Ford family is to our benefit, and I believe that our engaging in Detroit is fulfilling our mission and also benefits us because it gives us insights into one of the most exciting and challenging places to work in America. Those insights make us a better foundation. 
Now, how do you navigate? Because there's also a lot of sensitivities in Detroit about people showing up and people sort of, you know, parachuting in and all these kinds of different sensitivities, rightfully so, because I think there's been a lot of different things. So how does the Ford navigate that? Well, I'm quite familiar with that paradigm. I worked in Harlem in the 1990s, and I remember what it felt like to have so many people all of a sudden with an interest in our community when so many had left us for dead. And all of a sudden to have this renewed interest in in Harlem. In some ways, Detroit is experiencing a larger, a sort of larger scale version of that. So I am actually quite sensitive to giving attention to the needs of incumbent residents and the narrative of newcomers who see opportunity, who are willing to contribute to the renewal of a great American city. Our job is to support both of those narratives and both of those communities. I asked him about his favorite things about Detroit. And of course, the conversation turned to museums and their role in the renewal of this great city. Actually, start with museums because mm, Detroit has some yeah. great museums, starting with the Charles Wright Museum, which is a remarkable treasure, a jewel that is the repository of the great collection of, of a black collector, Charles Wright, that really chronicles the trajectory of African Americans in Detroit and in America. And next door to it, of course, is the DIA, uh, the Detroit Institute of Arts, a remarkable, world-class encyclopedic museum. And that collection is among the top five collections in the country, no doubt about it, hands down. So let's combine those two. Like, so what is the role of a museum in this kind of renewal? I think this is a topic we're hearing a lot in different kind of ways. Because, of course, in the case of the DIA, there was the threatening of the selling off of the collection. And people were really horrified, or at least a lot of us were horrified that that would even happen. There were a lot of conversations like, what would the role of a museum be in this kind of environment? Where often museums have catered to a certain elite. And in this case, it's sort of like museums are trying to rethink Like, how do we engage with a community that has its own sort of problems and challenges that are way beyond sometimes what a museum could traditionally do? So what do you think that is? Well, whether you're talking about the Metropolitan Museum in New York or the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston or the DIA, these institutions have to be engaged in an interrogation of their mission in light of current circumstances, Mm -hmm. in light of a changing world. What is the role of a museum? I would posit that museums must move beyond the 19th century American construction of what a museum is supposed to be, a building with steps that you (laughs) must walk up gently to the top And at the top stands a curator, and that curator will wave their wand over you and allow you entrance if you are willing and able to understand and embrace their ideological perspective. I love the way you're saying it. It sounds almost like a performance. (laughs) Well, it it is in, in some ways a reflection of a hierarchical notion of culture and the formalized European model that most American museums adopted. And I actually believe that model has to be reconsidered 
yes, we must have rigor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the European influence is at the center, absolutely. But a notion today that there is some curator who is the gatekeeper and that you must gain admission by passing their test is no longer a defensible approach. And so museums today have to ask themselves, how do we serve? How do we fulfill our mission in a time when the very work that we do is being questioned? Right. Good questions. Ones I hope other higher-ups at our beloved cultural institutions are thinking about every day. But of course, this isn't really just a theoretical discussion as we see the realities of this daily around us. So I asked Darren for his thoughts on the recent controversies at two major museums in the US, the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, and then the controversy over the Dana Schutz painting at the Whitney Biennial. How is this new wave of questioning of institutional power impacting his own work at the Ford? Has it had an impact? Absolutely. Well, I think we, large foundations, too, have to interrogate our paradigm. I think just as museums need to be more consultative, we need to be more consultative. We need to not presume that we have the answers to the problems we're seeking to solve, but that the answers are actually out there, meaning in communities, in the lived experience of poor people, people of color, women, LGBTQ people, and people who are marginalized and disenfranchised, that actually asking them what they need ought to be a critical ingredient in formulating whatever strategy or approach we take as a foundation. Mm -hmm. And I think in the case of museums, museums need to do that too. I think the Walker situation is one where the Walker and the artist would have benefited from consulting with the Native American community about this idea of these gallows Mm -hmm. uh, as a work of art. And I think there might have been a different outcome. In the case of the Whitney, I think Dana's painting is quite powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think Emmett Till's mother had in fact put his image in the public domain Mm -hmm. because she in fact wanted it to be reproduced and the visual of his mutilated body to be uh, viscerally felt by the public. Mm -hmm. And the experience of his death at the hand of a group of racist uh, people. And that actually comes through Mm -hmm. in Dana's painting. I, in the case of the Whitney, believe that it's a terrific work of art. I think It is a very sensitive thing to appropriate images and particularly appropriation of images of people who have been discriminated against and marginalized is particularly sensitive. However, as I say, in the case of Emmett Till, that visual, that image was put in the public domain, in fact, by his mother. The whole conversation reminded me that the Whitney Biennial really hit a nerve this year and everyone's got an opinion. We'll be exploring the Whitney Biennial in future episodes of the podcast this season, and particularly the conversations we think people weren't having and probably should have had. But back to Darren Walker. His openness to the arts was particularly refreshing. He clearly loves art of all kinds, 
and I knew his partner was an art dealer, but I really had a sense that his passion was much deeper than that. And then I discovered this wonderful story about his grandmother, who worked as a maid and would bring home art books and performance programs for the young Darren. So I asked him to tell us about that. Well, my grandmother, who was really my Aunt Big, that's a complicated story, I won't go into that, but she was amazing, is amazing. She's 91 years old now, and she would bring me everything back. I mean, I of the family possessions, <laughs> I had many. I had the boys' clothes, I had uh, uh, the books, uh, I had all sorts of things from that family's home that were brought in nice bags from the Piggly Wiggly to me. But the art books and the shelter magazines were absolutely among my most treasured possessions. Mm. And in part because I love to read and I love to dream. And I had a very vivid imagination, mm. uh, as I was told, not in those terms, as a little boy. So what did it suggest to you? Because, I mean, when you don't have experience going to museums and galleries and you get these books and these different art books and you're sort of like pouring over them and trying to figure them out and decipher them, I'm kind of curious, what was your instinct to do that work? For me, it was, on the one hand, sort of taking me out of what was not a great context for me at that time as a little boy. And it also energized my thinking and my imagination in ways that put me in those places, right? And that put me in a dialogue with the people, the art, the homes, the lifestyles. I mean, I would look through shelter magazines and say, oh my gosh, people actually live in big houses with lots of bathrooms, you know? and <laughs> With rooms they don't use. Yeah, with rooms they don't use. <laughs> Could you imagine such a thing? And this is their second home. Um, and, what, and what would it be like to be at a performance of the Houston Ballet? And who are these people? And so you just really started this dialogue that was in part fantasy. Yeah. And I think for children, being able to develop a capacity for fantasy is really important, right. uh, particularly for poor kids or mm-hmm. kids who, like me who were absolutely not what was quote-unquote normal, um, at least I was told not normal. <laughs> um, right. And so that ability to imagine yourself outside of your current context and in a different context and how art would play a role in that and how being engaged in artistic endeavors was something that was aspirational and something one wished to work towards. So a lot of people grow up with this idea that somehow those spaces aren't for them. And I'm kind of curious what was different about you that you felt very much welcome in these spaces. Well, I think what happened for me was that when I arrived at the University of Texas in 1978, Austin was a remarkable cultural center. And the University of Texas, in many ways, was ahead of its time in terms of a university campus having really outstanding cultural facilities. I was the head of the student union, and our student union had a big budget, and we actually contracted and programmed all sorts of arts. I remember seeing Palabolas the first time they came to Texas in 1978, I believe it was. And at the old Hogg Auditorium on the main campus, which has been replaced now with this amazing, huge new performing arts center. But at the time, to have a dance troupe 
from Dartmouth come running across the stage naked and doing these things on stage, which to a 19-year-old seemed pretty outrageous. And I was completely entranced by it. I mean, It was at this moment I felt like I was having a little bit of a deja vu because I've had conversations like this with many people, like myself, who found art as a way forward in their lives. Many of us may have grown up poor, working class, or isolated, but somehow art helped us find our way. I found the stories, though, particularly resonate with some groups, particularly LGBTQ people, talking about how the arts helped them understand themselves and understand the worlds in different kinds of ways. So I asked Darren why he thought that was. Why is it that the arts speak so loudly for some communities that often feel their voices aren't necessarily being heard? Because I think the arts validate our queerness. I think because we growing up are often told how different, or at least in my generation, how not normal we are, Mm -hmm. to be in a sector of society, in an industry where one can make a living, Mm -hmm. and for your lived experience to be normalized, to actually be the fodder for creativity, to be the material for the play or the dance or the performance piece or the visual art. I mean, that's hugely validating. And so it's no surprise that so many gay, queer men and women are attracted to theater or the visual arts, the performing arts, or the humanities in general. Because I think it really, we are embraced and we are validated for our difference. And that is celebrated. And in fact, it makes it possible for people to produce magnificent work that wins awards and is validated and valorized by the larger public. This conversation made me wonder if the four foundations saw themselves as part of the larger art world. And if they did, what exactly was the role that they played? He mentioned the recently created Agnes Gunn Fund called Art for Justice, which will be created after the well-known philanthropist sells her prize Roy Lichtenstein, you know, that pop artist. She bought the painting for roughly around $30,000 decades ago, and now it's expected to fetch over $100 million. Mind-boggling, right? I asked him what he thought a fund like this could actually do. Not theoretically, but in reality. Well, I think it's a huge, uh, amazing, generous stroke of genius on Aggie's part. Everyone who knows Agnes Gunn knows that she is one of the country's great collectors and philanthropists. And Aggie loves artists. And she, she's been on a journey. And that journey has led her to understand the intersection of race and gender and justice and systems in this country that produce injustice. And a primary one is our criminal justice system. And Aggie, I think, believes, as I do, that the arts play a role. I think she also is the grandmother of six African-American young people who she cares deeply about and who she has the unique vantage uh, that most of her white you know, peers wouldn't have, and that is the vantage point of having black grandchildren and seeing how young black boys are sometimes treated. And I think this concerns her greatly. The fact that 
our criminal justice system indeed produces such bad outcomes for primarily Black and Latino men and women in this country and their families and communities is of great urgent concern to her. Speaking of inequality, I think she recognizes that a painting that she paid, you know, I mean, $30,000 for that was worth $150 million probably could be monetized for real impact on an issue that she cared a lot about. And so that led her to doing something that she didn't want to do, but that she felt compelled to do, which was to sell her prized Liechtenstein picture, which she had bought as a young art collector. And because she knew Roy very well and his wife, Dorothy, dear friend, this was a big deal for her. What do you think the benefit of a fund like this is going to be? Because, you know, you can create as many funds as you want, but people want to know, like, sort of, how is it going to really help the situation? How will it? It first raises awareness of the issue, Mm -hmm. right? So the surfacing, framing, and naming of this injustice in our criminal justice system is advanced Mm -hmm. by efforts like Aggie's. Concretely, these funds will attract additional funds from people who will also sell art or give money to match her $100 million commitment over five years. And so we will have more than $100 million. We'll have hopefully $200 million. Right. And it will be invested in efforts that change our bail system that invest in prison education programs so that when people leave prison, they are more equipped to navigate with the credentials and the educational experience they need. And thirdly, to invest in re-entry programs because our criminal justice system in many ways seems designed to strip people of their humanity and their capacity to function. And we've seen the results of that. The high levels of recidivism is in part because people leave prison unequipped to function, that they find themselves back in prison. And so this program will work on reentry initiatives that help people gain employment, housing, etc. So do you consider the Ford Foundation part of the art world or art community? I'm just kind of curious what part of the ecosystem the Ford Foundation fits into. You know, in some ways, the fund that we set up with Agnes Gund is called the Art for Justice Fund. We see our work in a very intersectional way. And so we believe that culture is a root cause and a root solution to many of the challenges that we seek to solve. And that cultural and artistic production is a way to contribute to solving some of the problems that we are missioned to solve. So we don't see the arts as a separate silo. We don't see the arts as something that's instrumental. We see the arts as something that is essential in building and providing people with dignity. And dignity is what we seek to achieve for everyone, that people live full lives with dignity. And in order for that to happen, the arts are critical. I mean, think about what seeing beauty 
does to elevate one's sense of dignity and seeing imagery that actually looks like you. I mean, imagine what that feels like to a young Latinx girl to see Teresita Fernandez and to see imagery in an artist or on a canvas that actually looks like you and it's on a wall in this important place. That gives you dignity. That gives you a sense of, well, I must be valuable in some way. It challenges the normative ideas of who is worthy and who is less worthy in a society. Can you think of examples in your own life where you've seen that have an impact or that you've seen it have an impact on others? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, when I think about the first time I saw Van Der Zee photography, oh my gosh. And seeing the photography of, say, Gordon Parks. Oh, right. Or the first time I saw the Jacob Lawrence, the migration series, the pieces. Actually, I saw them at the Phillips before I saw them at MoMA. But I just remember seeing these images of blackness. And they were often really beautiful. I mean, seeing those Vanderzees of black people standing in front of their brownstones up on Strivers Row, dressed to the nines before church gave me this image of the black experience as being something very different than I had experienced in a small town in Texas. And so it lifts us up. I was impressed. A foundation head who could instantly talk about the impact artists have had on him. And they weren't even necessarily the most famous artists. I also discovered something Darren and I had in common. We were both products of public education straight through to grad school. It's rare to encounter people in this position bragging about public education. I found it pretty refreshing, since I work in a field choked with Ivy Leaguers and private college graduates. I had to ask him why he's so vocal about his belief in public education. I am radical about my belief in public education, and it's one of the reasons on my biography, on the website or whenever it's published, I call out the fact that I was educated exclusively in public schools and a public university and law school, in part because it is increasingly rare. I mean, when I find myself on a panel or speaking at a particular conference or summit or whatever, and I flip through and read the educational background of many of the other speakers, I'm surprised at how rare it is that you see someone who has been educated exclusively at public schools. I mean, someone like myself who has actually never attended a day of private school. And I say that because I think I want to remind people that those of us who are products of public education succeed in this country and that our success is made largely possible because of public investment in human capital like me and you and other people who are doing very important work. And yet, sometimes the bias towards private schools, particularly private colleges, is felt. I think it's more acute in the Northeast than in the rest of the country. There are better private public schools often in other parts of the country. And there's a longer legacy in a place like Texas, for example, where the leaders of industry, of government, of civic life, 
for the most part in a place like Texas or most of the country, are people who attended public, uh, right. certainly public universities, if not uh, public K-12. through Whereas in the Northeast, the legacy is one where private colleges and universities came first. And the emphasis for developing leaders, particularly for elite institutions, were that the private colleges were where leaders were being developed and where the pipeline for leadership was to be found. I just think that legacy I find still holds, unfortunately. And finally, I also wanted to talk to him about the Ford Foundation's iconic building on East 43rd Street in Manhattan. Opened in 1967, the building was revolutionary in the way it sort of integrated green space into corporate architecture. When you walk in on the ground floor, there's a lush garden which greets all the visitors and then a huge atrium that seems to hollow out the structure so that the offices are above, including the president's office. And let me tell you, I visited the president's office last year and it's probably the size of many two-bedroom apartments in New York. Clearly, this was from another era. The plan may have appealed to the ideology of openness at the time that was really prevalent. That whole idea about transparency and architecture representing these ideals of freedom and American liberty and justice and you know what I mean. Not to also see it as a clear declaration of wealth and prestige. Because what other entity could really afford to turn over so much valuable New York real estate to something as pleasurable as a garden? It is a remarkable work of architecture. It reflects Henry Ford II's ambition for the foundation when he moved us to New York. And I think it reflects Kevin Roche's brilliance as the lead architect whose just ability to translate Henry and the trustees' very grand ambition for the foundation. And there were so many innovations and just marks of genius in the original design. The way in which Warren Plattner and Kevin collaborated on the seamlessness of the interior space with the vision for this very modernist kind of building to be a whole. And of course, the enclosed garden made it, was the piece de resistance. It made this building something unlike any other building in America at the time. And I think though, the reality is that that building was built just for us. It in no way was meant to accommodate the public. And I think as we now have had to reimagine the building, because we were no longer code compliant and because of a number of structural issues needed to rethink the building, it gave us a chance to consider anew what a Ford building for the next 50 years would be like. And my view of this is that we need to be a public-facing building and that we need to be a center for social justice serving the social justice community. And therefore, the first thing that will be different is that we will be much less, the Ford Foundation staff will have uh, a reduced footprint in the building. And so we will now be on six floors rather than eight floors. The building will have large convening spaces for our grantees. There will be a public program with films um, in the auditorium, um, an art gallery that serves the public. 
And the goal will be to make the Ford building a destination for social justice organizations and leaders. I think in terms of the architecture and design, it will be a radically different building. The building was, in many ways, an ideal madman hierarchical space. And what I mean by that is your office was a function of how high up you were in the organization. The 10th floor, which was where the president and the vice president sat, was a very remote uh, (laughs) place by invitation only, if you will. Going forward, there won't be long corridors with lots of offices. In fact, when you get off the elevator, the entire space will just be open on most floors. And I think that will, architecturally, it means the building will really be transparent. It will be a glass cube that you see through as opposed to looking up and seeing into offices. I think that transparency, I hope, is a metaphor for our becoming more transparent and more reflective of the people we hope to serve and whose communities we hope to have impact. The renovations are designed by Gensler Architects, and they were approved by the city's Landmark Preservation Commission. The chair of that commission even called the renovations very modest and incredibly respectful. But it is New York, and some neighbors and preservationists have been grumbling about everything from the removal of the original bronze doors and exterior planters to the placement of the wheelchair path. It does open next year, so that's when we're all going to get a chance to go and see and judge the new Ford in Midtown for ourselves. I honestly can't wait. And then Darren Walker surprised me to reveal that he reads Hyperallergic Daily. I have to say I was cut off guard and very, very honored. I'd just like to say thank you. I love Hyperallergic. You guys do a fantastic job. I read you every day and the criticism is brilliant and so insightful. Today's review of Documenta, I couldn't (laughs) stop reading. Every day there's something new and fresh and interesting and intriguing to read on Hyperallergic. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hyperallergic Podcast. My name is Harag Vartanian. This episode was edited by Garen Geikian. And the music featured in this episode was Give It To Your Choir by Mark Pritchard from Warp Records. You can hear more from his latest release, Under the Sun, at markprtchrd.com. That's markpritchard.com. And find more great music from Warp Records at warp.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time.